0: If a studio is crunching that much up to the launch date of a game, it's it's just guaranteed that that game is (laughs) broken. It's guaranteed. I I don't I don't know of a scenario where a studio has crunched nonstop and then delivered a perfectly smooth game experience. That's not how it goes. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 343 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast, Butterscotch Shenanigans. I'm Seth and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam and I'm wearing glasses. I'm Sam and I'm on vacation. And this is a show where we talk about life, business, and working in the games industry. Today is December 23, 2021. Dunk on everyone. And before we get started, we have a warning there's going to be profanity in this show. Uh, we'd also like to thank our supporters over at uh, whose money we grabbed. And uh, we grabbed a new person's money this time, Ooh. this week. Uh, Conrad F said, uh, set TCP.don't fragment. I don't know what that means. Uh, Adam might know what that
1: means. I'm pretty sure this is a uh, callback to the person who split up their. Uh, there one comment uh, over, like, four posts or whatever it was.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. right. Because the uh, don't yeah, fragment follow. basically
1: means, like, because TCP is just how shit goes over the internet, right? It's like yeah. your packets of data. So, uh, so don't, don't frag is like, like, don't, like don't,
0: don't break my data up, keep it all in one piece. Uh, but then Conrad also said, thanks for this hilarious podcast. Love you guys. So thank you very oh, much thanks. for the donation. Appreciate it. Uh, and, of course, thank you to our recurring supporters as well. Uh, so it's the end of the year almost. We've got one more episode. Coming up. Uh, so, we're not doing our year in review yet, you know. Uh, but also, we're on break and we've got a lot of stuff happening, but it's all kind of in its midpoints. And so, we're just going to go right into questions and not really worry about uh, studio news, industry news, whatever. You guys ready? I'm super ready. Yeah, buddy. All right. So the highest up-footed question from podcast.bscotch.net comes from Bscotch Mike, who, you know, that's coming from inside the house mm. there, one of our QA testers. Mike says, uh, what question do you find yourselves asking other people most often? For example, mine is, what are you thinking about? Mm. Uh,
1: so this is just like general other people, not, not like in the industry, just – Just
0: other people. other people. Other people. I always ask people, what are you working on? Like, people always say, like, what do you do? Mm -hmm. You know, sort of, like, as a job or whatever. But I always want to know, like, specifically, what kinds of, like, interesting projects do people have that Mm -hmm. they're working on? Because it may not be about their job or, you know, whatever. Um, But I think having it be open-ended like that lets people pick. You know, mm-hmm. are they like, are they working on learning how to speak a new language? Do they have a cool project at work they want to talk? But, you know, but I think most people have some kind of thing that they're like working on. It
2: might as, it's a you know? similar one, but I think it's, it's a, it always feels weird asking it because it feels abnormal to ask. But if you just, if you ask one, what are you, what are you interested in? Yeah. Which what sounds, it just, yeah, what are you basically like, what are you into? Is sort from of the more colloquial version of it. But like, oh yeah, what you, like what are you into? You know, what are you, what, what's. What are you interested in? What gets you going? You know that sort of vibe. Um, I think it's a weird question to try to ask in a casual manner because it feels like an interview question, even though that to me is like it's one of the more interesting ones you can ask someone. Because, like you said, Seth, you don't necessarily want to hit the work front because you know that's not necessarily someone's particular uh, domain of focus or the most interesting thing they got going on. But if you, you can just say like, "What are you what? interested in? What do you got going on?" Yeah.
0: And well the work question kind of some people get charged up about it because because sometimes it can be asked uh, as a judgment right yeah. like mm-hmm. pe- people people can interpret that as like I want to know what you do so that I can decide to treat you differently right yeah. you know yep. if i know yep. that you're in like a like a high high earning career or not and then i can you know adjust my mm-hmm. my judgment mm-hmm. of you um But yeah, I I think, I think angling it more toward just like about the person, you know, and what they're interested in, what they like to do, if they've got any cool stuff that they're working on. Um, Yeah. And I mean, one thing that we've kind of talked about in the past too, is this idea of like, it can be really hard to engage with people in that way because um, I, I, it's kind of a bummer, but I feel like a lot of people are used to having their interests dismissed by people around them. Oh, that's
1: absolutely. Uh, absolutely
0: Where it's like, yeah, where it's like, you're excited about something, you want to talk about it. And other people are like, yeah, no, like, I don't know about that. Or they just, Mm -hmm. you know, they just don't engage or they, you know, they, they obviously believe that it's boring. And so then you just kind of like, don't want to talk about it. So that oftentimes a response that I would get if I asked people like, what are you working on? What are you interested in? You know, it's just that like, uh, oh, it's nothing. It's not really like, it's not really that interesting, yeah. right? De- downplay
2: it before you talk about it so that in case someone says they don't care or whatever else you don't have to feel hurt,
0: you know? Yeah, but, which like, eh. don't do that. Just just lean into it, you know? Well, I know I know. it's, like it a, is, it's a risk management strategy because you don't want to talk about something you're excited about and then get shot down by somebody who obviously yeah. doesn't care and is bored. But you know, yeah. you got to,
1: you got to take the shots. Well, that's the thing is, but is, I mean, it makes sense though that, cause in, in most contexts, because we're all, we're all trained like this from the moment we grow up and go to school, right. Where everyone's trying to uh, brutalize you into being interested in the same stuff, you know? So if you don't like sports, well, you're going to get punched into a locker, right? So that's like, that's the process of getting brutalized into the interests that are acceptable and everything else is, is weird. And we all like everybody carries that through. Right. So it is a, a, very reasonable protective mechanism to take to, to avoid uh, allowing people to do damage to your sort of picture of what the stuff is that you like. Right. Um, So however you can find company who won't do that, uh, you know, do that. But the main thing is, is that, is that you better, you better not do that yourself, you know? (laughs) Well,
0: and I think, I think it's kind of, it's this kind of a framing thing, but it's like, I don't I don't think it's even just about like, quote, brutalizing but it's just about like, let's say, cause I'm, I'm personally not interested in professional sports. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people are really interested in professional sports, right? And so I think there's like, if somebody comes and talks to me like, oh yeah, did you catch the game last night or something? You know, there's, there's a tendency that I would have to be like, I don't even know like what game, what are you talking about? I'm not, I don't really, I don't do sports. I'm not, I don't watch sports, right? Um, but, but I think, trying to find some way to engage with it where it's sort of like because people love teaching people about the thing that they're interested in yeah if you right? if you remain actually curious about stuff as opposed yeah. to being
2: like i don't sports so i don't even care if it's like oh I, you know i didn't i don't really follow sports too much but but what happened
0: yeah you nothing know, cool happened so cool? you know yeah <laughs> yeah um yeah, yeah and so kind of like just you know? Yeah, cuz cuz if you always shut it down just because it's not something that you, you know, are customarily interested in, then you're going to miss some cool stuff. And like one of the things that we've talked about uh, about like what's cool about game development and one of the things we love about it is that it's it's a cross-blending of just tons and tons of disciplines, right? And so the more broad your knowledge about the world and your understanding of just like what's going on, whether it's football or you know, Star Wars or, you know, like what, Mm -hmm. whatever, um, those things do pop up. And so just try to engage in whatever level you can. If somebody comes to you and they're like super pumped about something.
2: My favorite is uh, like, I think it's a good rule of thumb to have uh, a follow-up question actually in the back pocket, which is as simple as just saying, oh, tell me more about that. Like, yep. You say that to someone, people are like, oh, okay. Like I can kind of, you know, I can kind of get into a bit. And then again, it's like you let people choose you know, what level of uh, participation they want with regards to that. I think it's that's a really fun way to do it. Because even if you don't know anything about whatever they're interested in, or if, you know, the thing is, if someone come up to me, you know, and they said, oh, I'm really into NFTs, you know. Uh, well, it might be the case that I'm like, I don't really care about these. But, like, I'm super interested in why they would, you know, and we could talk about that. Like, and I don't have to be, I don't need to show up and, like, try to dunk on them or could change their mind about something, but just like still get into why they're into it. Because it's fun to be yeah, well, into yeah. stuff it, with people. It
1: right? always depends on the like the level of badness of a thing is bad, right? Like if mm-hmm. someone's into something that's just a literally a bad thing, then you know, you don't want to advocate for that, right? But so I'm not saying that NFTs falls into that category.
0: Um but if you mean like if somebody has some particularly uh not great Views ideas or opinions about. about.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, well, People are usually, people, you don't usually say that as a thing that is the, of the interest. Of what the are thing. you interested <laughs> in? Well,
0: hate uh, I, I'm really into hating certain yeah, I mean, people, get bit,
2: actually. Uh, but <laughs> they do get, they do get but pretty fast.
1: Uh, yeah. I'm mean, but the idea of like, to Sam's point, the, cause the question is, what is the interaction for? Right. If it's like you're meeting somebody, shooting the shit, trying to get to know somebody. Right. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, and someone brings up something that you're not into um, or that you are actively hostile to for some reason, uh, unless they're trying to sell you that thing, you know, like if they're trying to make you buy an NFT or they're trying to sell you on the idea that like NFTs are super important or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and like, and now all of a sudden you're being proselytized to, I think it's okay to maybe push back on that. Right. But if they're just talking about it because they're into it and they're just mm-hmm. talking about why they're into it, all that kind of stuff. That's a different kind of,
0: that's them just sharing something that they're into. Yeah. It's okay. a question of if the conversation is about shoulds versus is, yeah. right? So if they're talking about what, what they like or how something is right, then it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Let's talk about that. But as soon as they start, start telling you what you should believe or what you should do, you know, based on well, like what they're interested in, that starts to get annoying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so don't definitely don't do that. Um, yeah. You know, if, but it's, if, it's, if I ask somebody about football and they're like, oh yeah, you should really like start watching because it's, uh, it's so good. Right. It's like, okay, well, like I are actually, I'm, my cup is full. Like I already do have a bunch of interests. Right. So when you're telling someone that they should start doing something, uh, that's, that's kind of an awkward thing now because they may not be able to, and they don't want to engage in the conversation that way, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so anyways, that's, yeah. that's kind of awkward. But, but I think the thing
1: for like, for your so side, and speaking from my own experiences, like, cause we, we've all been guilty of this,
0: right? Oh yeah. Through, through our lives of. It's hard not, it's hard not to. It's hard not to, like, but, and there are a lot of reasons for this, it. And some
1: of them feel, feel well earned, you know? It's so like for, it was very easy for me to be extremely dismissive of sports and people who are into sports. And for me, it was internally justified as karma because of how much sports dominated and, and made my life difficult. Growing up as a child, yeah, we're
0: from i we're from Iowa. Yes, yeah, so it was. Like, it's
1: the only thing you're allowed to like. Anything else is is inappropriate, right? Um, and and so I've just it's everything is saturated with it constantly. And like you can't get away from it, and it's all everybody will talk about. And when you don't care about it, you just want it to stop, right? And so what that meant for me was to develop a hostility towards it, so that I would be just very dismissive, right? As a basically a part of self protective mechanism, but mostly honestly, like me trying to get well, retribution. Sort of,
2: you do right. the bullying that was done to you. is sort of usually yeah. what happens,
1: right? It's so easy it's... to fall into that trap because yeah. it feels Send right. It, back. it feels justified, and, uh, and you know, and some sometimes in some certain kinds of cases it is, but not with respect to just what people are interested in. You know, that's not one of those cases. Uh, so, so we've all been there. Just be be nice, be careful, just be interested. You know.
0: Yep. Yeah. And if somebody is, yeah, if somebody's doing that proselytizing of their interests or whatever, uh, yeah, just try to find a way to, you know, tastefully disengage without, Mm -hmm. you know, flipping it back on them aggressively. (laughs) I mean, I know that that's, that's something that I went, I I think, I think it's something that a lot of people go through, especially like around their like early twenties, kind of like college, college years, because yeah, because like you do get to suddenly find people, uh, who do share your interests, Mm-hmm. and it's very easy to land in sort of a, a tribalistic like us versus them mindset where like now you've managed to create a bubble for yourself right um and being in that bubble is just as much about who isn't in the bubble as it is about who is in the bubble right so whether it's like a bunch of people who are really into gaming and are like not 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 it's not even that they're not interested in sports, right? But it's that they like hate the idea of sports and they're, that they talk shit about people who do like sports, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so now you you go from like being uninterested into a thing to being like actively hostile toward that thing. And that's like an easy trap to, to fall into, you know? Uh, so just, you know, be careful, be careful about mm-hmm. that. Uh, next question comes from PS, PS7 Cho, mm. who we, we haven't heard from in a little while. A while, So, uh, who says, Sam, how did you find your mentor, or how did your mentor find you? Are you now mentoring? Ooh. Um, yeah, I think I've I think I mentioned this maybe on the podcast
2: here or there, but the general story for uh, myself, for finding my mentor, came from basically taking a class, and I was just very alert and very interested the whole time. Because it was very interesting. You gave a shit? I really gave a shit. And uh, mentors tend to pick up on that. And then uh, those relationships I found when they happen very naturally, not within like a structured sort of environment, um, tend to follow that particular path. Which is the mentor notices that someone's just like really into it. And so naturally just wants to share whatever they got.
0: uh, It's just like we were talking about. People who are really into a thing love – to re-experience that thing through the eyes of a of a newbie, mm-hmm. you know, and like help teach it and help someone along that journey because it's very nostalgic. It's very satisfying, you know. Mm-hmm. And you get a lot out of it emotionally. I think. Yeah, and so. But they have to care. They have to. Re- they have to be able to receive it, right? And so, like, that's the vibe that you put out, right? Hundred percent. Yeah, like, I want to you, know about this. Yeah.
2: You have to not feel like you, uh, like you're. Like you said like, is your your cup is already full, or like your somehow already have all your opinions formed about this thing. Because mentors aren't there to, uh, they're not trying to convince you of anything, actually. Uh, it's very basically guiding you through a, a learning process. And so uh, he and I were extremely close for, actually I think still are. I mean, I actually chatted with him uh, just two weeks ago for like three hours. Um, because basically every time we get together, we end up chatting for somewhere between three and five hours. No matter if it's been six weeks, if it's been six months, it's always is basically the same amount of time. Um, so I kind of have to clear my schedule for the day to (laughs) to do it. So it's like an afternoon thing. So we're still very close. Uh, and yeah, I, I, the thing is I appreciated all that, um, just sort of life advice too that came along with the basically tech, he, he considered himself more of a technologist. And so a lot of the higher level philosophy of that, not necessarily about web development or design or whatever else, but just about, you know, doing what technology is for and also what a good life looks like and stuff like that. And yeah, I do actually mentor, uh, currently. So there's, there's, uh one or two people who I, one person in particular who I've, who I talk to every single month, um, basically four weeks for about an hour. Uh, we kind of talk through what's going on in her studio and what um, kind of moves, moves she can make to keep on improving that thing and, and they can get their games out and stuff like that. And I've, it's a really, it's a, been a fascinating thing. we have been doing it almost for a year now. Um, if not it's been a while. That. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been fascinating because it gives me the opportunity to see, you know some other angles to problems that we've experienced before, but also to to understand really that uh, the path is more or less the same every time. And the purpose of a mentor to me is not it's not really about avoiding the mistakes because they're sort of like even if you understand, you kind of like
0: you have to make the mistake. You have to make it to fully. Somebody understand. can tell you. Somebody can tell you a thousand times. Like, by the way, there is a cliff up there, and you're like, I don't know though. I got, or you could be like, okay, I'm yeah, gonna I'll, keep I'll watch walking. out for it, and then you just fucking go off the edge, anyways, right? Yeah. Um, and the mentor is there to kind of like catch you right as you're falling off the cliff, exactly. and be like, okay, what did we learn? <laughs>
2: yeah, I think it's about the it's about the quickest quickest recovery and better uh, sort of solidification of whatever the lessons are, so that you sort of. You don't actually, like, you know, with the cliff metaphor, you don't actually fall all the way down the cliff and then take another fucking year to get back up to where you were before. It's like,
0: yeah, it's just, they've got a rope or they've got some way to kind of get you back up. Yeah,
2: so it's been, it's been very enjoyable um, and very meaningful for me, actually. And I, I had asked her this past, uh past i was like hey i was just out of curiosity because i was like i'm having a good time with this of course but i want to make sure that like we've been doing it for a year yeah. and i was like so it's no- a
0: good check-in to have like yeah are I do, you like, miserable
2: <laughs> yeah with, with any of these recurring uh recurring things that don't have an obvious out right whether it's a book yeah. club uh you know things that aren't seasonal basically i do like to check in basically once every quarter and be like where are we at do we need to keep doing this do want to do more less whatever um and she was like oh no, no no like this is this is like the fucking best as far as like one hour of time per month getting this like just huge amount mm. of sort of uh, insight and stuff like that. And mainly I just ask questions anyways. So, you know, it might be – it's it's one of my favorite things because it makes me feel it's a practice of doing the kind of design uh, forensics that we do ourselves, whether it's with the game, with production, whatever else, where someone says, oh, like – yeah, you know, we tried to do this thing. and it's like, it just isn't working. It's like, okay, what do you, what do you mean when you say you tried to do this? Like, what is that? What did that look like? what do you mean by working? working? Yep. Yep. And so <laughs> you just, just keep on. What do you mean? Yeah. So, so usually it's like a half hour or 40 minutes of me just like essentially asking a lot of questions to figure out what's happening. And then the last little bit is being like, okay, I think roughly this is probably the shape of the problem. So try this maybe. And then tell me how that goes. Um, and so it's been very enjoyable. And, uh, Something I you know looking forward to I think in that particular case and also with you know other randos as I meet in the future. So well, it's also a two way deal, right? Because I know that
1: uh, through so then secondhand through then Sam like talking about what mm-hmm. has gone on in those in those mentorship sessions and stuff. Um, then we've you know learned about how another studio is like getting off the ground and operating. It's working under very different constraints and mm-hmm. resources than we are um, with like an active publisher and all this other stuff that's going on. Um, and so then they have a highly overlapping, but still very different set of problems mm-hmm. and being able to evaluate and like update our own mental models of what it means to work in the games industry with a very in-depth understanding of a completely different example mm-hmm. is very, very useful. So I mean, any good mentorship slash, you know, like a industry kind of relationship where there's, there's a we're trying to solve a common set of problems together, kind of a vibe to it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, there there will be some amount of of uh, two-way exchange, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Oh, yeah. And that's what makes, because I think, I imagine for Sam, probably like a lot of why it's fun is because you're not being presented with, oh, here's the same problems that we faced. Let me just tell you what we did, right? That's, that's not mm-hmm. what it is, right? It's, yeah. it's, she's talking about their problems, which are related to ours, but different. And now you are going to be better at seeing the kinds of questions that you can ask because we already dealt with that kind of thing a long time ago. Some, some version of Some that version of it. And so <laughs> yeah. we have a head start on being able to ask questions in that dynamic. Um, but the example is different, though. So it's not just, here's, here's what you're supposed to, to
2: do. different. Right? The time
0: yeah. is different. The context yeah. is different. Yeah, but yeah, you might be able to clarify. Yeah,
2: 100%. I think that the, the difference for me is, you know, I used to write a lot of articles on uh, just how to think about whether it was design problems in, cra- in the original Crashlands or how to do some art stuff or whatever else. I think that's the challenge I felt with uh, almost like that kind of static knowledge creation is that so much of what you actually need to deliver something of like serious value to someone is is actually that essentially that first half of just asking a shitload of questions about their particular problem. Yeah, because everything so, requires, everything only works in a specific context, right? Exactly. So, and so yeah. it's like, I, I almost much rather, I think now as far as impact, want to be able to spend that time upfront like really figuring out what the problem is for someone as opposed to just being like, here's how I did a thing in my context, uh, which is useful. And I think it's certain cases, but uh, it's for me less satisfying than I think it.
0: Well, it's, it's, that's a, that's a sort of conversational practice that I think you need to use in, in all contexts. Like just, just yesterday, um, Adam was doing a bunch of research on uh, change logs and kind of like try to see if there are ways that we can improve our, patch notes and versioning and change log and change management stuff. And uh, so we started talking through it and I saw kind of like the beginning of it. And immediately I was like, I don't like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then, but then I was like, okay, I need to, I need to just like hear more about all the different things that we're thinking about. Cause I want to make sure that we are talking about this, that we're, we mean the same things when we say this and that and this other thing. So let's, mm-hmm. Instead of talking about what this current proposal is, first let's just talk about what all of our current understanding is about what it is that we're doing, why we're doing it, and what we think the the benefits and like the pros and cons are, right? So we didn't even talk about the proposal itself until 30 minutes later Mm -hmm. of just like talking about how we view the current situation and sharing context, you know? Um, because yeah, it's really easy to just come into a thing and be like, oh yeah, I already know what's going on here and I hate this. <laughs> or, oh yeah, I've got some opinions. Let me tell you what you should do in this situation. Uh, because you don't necessarily know the situation yep. really. Well, right?
2: I think the, to be the mark of someone who you should consider listening to is usually, uh, whether or not they've, they've listened to you first, basically. Like if yeah. ask, if, if someone solicits a bunch of questions, in sort of the opening gambit of a conversation, then I think you're you're generally on a good track to know that like okay this is probably actually gonna be some good stuff coming out. But yeah, if you're like here's my problem, they're like I got I got hours of things I could just tell you about mm-hmm. stuff. It's like not usually good. It's like you're not here yep. to not here to demonstrate your expertise. You're here to yep. assist, and I think it's yep. that's it is it's, it's it, been a good yeah, practice.
1: And, a, and if you're not used to that as a person. Receiving it like as a if you're if you're going to somebody and asking for mm-hmm. guidance advice uh, critique on something whatever right um, mo- as we like go through all the various training systems that we go through uh, mostly it's presented as like there's a smart person who's an expert you give them the thing and then they just give and only tell the it. thing they just tell you some facts right uh, and the reality is not like that at all but it's a, it's a weird thing to experience for the first time because mm-hmm. it feels like you are being critiqued because somebody will start asking you questions, right? They're just drilling in down questions. And so right? Yeah. And some could've... of
0: the questions are very, maybe very basic, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so so uh, my, my wife is currently on a tennis uh, boot camp, basically, in Singapore. Um, and she's been playing tennis for 27 years. And one of the first things that happened when she got there was her coach was like, okay, first off, you're not holding the racket properly. <laughs> <laughs> Also, the tension is wrong in your strings, right? And so if you, and so he explained like why that why that would be a problem, and then also like took some video and kind of showed her some comparisons of like what she's doing versus what like you know pros are doing and stuff. Um, And it can, I think that there's a natural instinct there to be like, excuse me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, I'm not here to. I'm not here to talk about the basics. I'm here to get advanced coaching, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if if the coach ignored that and didn't ask questions about even the basic stuff at the lowest level, like just what, how are you holding the racket, right? Then you actually can't get to the advanced stuff because it all builds, right? Mm-hmm. And so like a, a, an expert who knows what they're doing will sometimes drill down and ask you questions that are just – Almost insultingly basic sometimes. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, when it the, goes that's in like the exact situation. rationale goes the
1: either way too, right? If you're now listening to somebody describe something and that you're like getting a critique, you're learning something, whatever it is, uh, and they and they'll they'll say things that they say as if the meaning is obvious. Right, because mm-hmm. they're speaking with fluency from a context of expertise. Yeah,
2: or even just acronyms. Um, I love people hit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, Drop yeah. an acronym, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know
1: anything about your. Well, it, in what any terms, right? Any jargon at all, because mm-hmm. yeah. that's, that's part of what comes with fluency is that is the use of those terms. Right. Because for people who are fluent in those in those uh, domains of of uh, definitions of words and concepts, right, that's how they communicate the most effectively. Because those oh, jargony words. Loaded Means something very precise. That's why we have jargon, right? And so, Mm -hmm. uh, but as soon as you go to somebody who doesn't have that, then, and are trying to like talk through something, right, then they won't, they'll, that person will be talking as if everything they say makes complete sense, is completely comprehensible, right? Because that's what they're used to. That's how they're used to describing that topic, especially the deeper somebody gets into some domain of knowledge Mm -hmm. while also not doing very much talking with people and working with people who are not nearly that far up, so they don't have practice doing that. The end result is that they just, they'll say things as if you know what they mean, right? Which makes you on the other side feel like, oh, I guess should like, I pause I should, this. Yeah. This, I, this is my fault for not knowing this, well, right? Well,
0: anyway. I think even the more sinister one is when you both are using the same words in a jargony way, but you mean totally different things. So oh, yeah. this was like our, our change log thing actually was like most of our conversation was like, what's a change log? What do you, when you when you say change logs, mm-hmm. what are you even talking about? Yep. Because here's what I think <laughs> of that as. <laughs> yeah. And it turned out that we were thinking of them as two very different things. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and so of course if we have a conversation about how to overhaul our changelog system. Uh, We both have a totally different picture of what the changelog system is, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so you can't actually have a conversation unless you settle on the basics, but that means – like you guys are talking about either recognizing when you have no clue what the person is talking about – or if it starts to feel like they're saying things that don't make sense to you, even though the words they're using are familiar, right? Because right. uh, you could be like, "Okay, hold on, we need to talk about terms here."
2: Yeah, and yeah. actually, this is one of my favorite things to do in conversation with someone. Because again, when you're talking with someone who knows, who really does know what they're talking about, and is like, and they're also they're very interested in it. Uh, like, I've actually I've never had a case where I've stopped someone and been like, "Sorry, I don't know what," you know you know, X, XYZ acronym means. Can you can you tell me what that is? Uh where they've been like remotely upset or dismissive about it. Uh oh yeah. No, and that's, so yeah, that's one it, of those it, yeah that's one of those things you remember har- in your head as like a possibility that like literally it almost never happens. Like
1: or that they'll like even if they don't do anything, that they'll now think worse of you because you didn't know what that thing No, was, People you
2: know? are usually actually if as soon as you start asking questions that actually drill in a little bit, then you are a very you're a very engaged and active Listener, and it's exactly the sort of thing that people appreciate the shit out of, right? Because it's like, mm-hmm. uh, like, I, yeah, basically, none of my conversations I've had have gotten less, they like usually get more amped up if I start asking questions to clarify yeah. very small words, right? Uh, because yeah. people are like, oh, this person's like really paying yeah. attention, yeah. really now there,
0: there is a window though, so you know, you guys probably have that scenario where like somebody tells you their name, but then you miss it, and then, oh, yeah. yep. And then too oh, much yeah. time passes, yep. and then now you can never learn that person's name because mm-hmm. you know the window has closed. Right. I so the same just thing goes don't with like know people's names as a consequence. The, the same thing goes with <laughs> jargon, right? Which is like if if somebody's having a conversation with you and you hear a word that's unfamiliar, and it, sometimes immediately you'll be like, "Okay, well, mm. I think I know what that means, but I'm yeah. going to try to like I'm going to keep listening and use context clues. Yeah, because you try to it compute
1: it yourself in. first, while well, as the conversation yeah. keeps going.
0: So then, like. After a while, they've said the word several times and you're like trying to follow along. And then five minutes in the conversation, you're thinking like, I don't I, I don't, I think, I don't I think I can mean. ask. I don't think I can ask what this word means anymore because that would mean that I've been pretending to understand what they're talking about this whole time. And I totally didn't. And then like, that's not going to be There's a new script for that though, which is just basically
1: just like, oh, sorry, hold on a second. I thought I understood what you meant by you know this word, but I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure that <laughs> as as it's gotten it. on I actually yep. I actually don't know. So if
0: you could explain that maybe we can go back a little bit and you know, talk back through it. Yeah. Um yeah, yeah you can. But yeah, it, Again, like nobody's nobody's going to be upset about it or whatever. And you yeah. just got to you just got to own the own the lack of knowledge. Be like, "Oh yeah, sorry. Actually, I, I don't know what you I don't quite know what that means. Can you fill <laughs> me in <laughs> on?" So, uh, anyways, next question comes from Captain Jazz who says, following you all discovering DevOps, you guys quickly implemented the concept of small batch sizes into Levelhead, which later turned into uh, larger batch sizes as project complexity increased. Now with the development of Crashlands 2, you seem to have rediscovered the appeal of small batch sizes or MVPs. Uh, Concerning project scope and how much to focus on at once, what are some of the biggest takeaways you have learned in these past few years? Mm. Concerning project scope? uh, That was the... uh, well, I project think... scope and how much to focus on it. So it's kind of like a question of like advantages of small batch versus versus large batch sizes, um, or just maybe like other DevOps. Well, I think this stuff. is actually
1: kind of with an interesting because there's kind of an implication here that that uh, that us moving from like the small batch to a larger batch is also a departure from DevOps, right? And mm-hmm. uh, the thing to always remember with any of these kinds of concepts is that it's it's all about the whys, right? Not the whats. It's about cuz why are you trying to go for a small batch? What's the idea there? Well, the idea there is that you get to deliver stuff through the system faster, all the systems keep on running, work doesn't pile up, things get critiqued really quickly and they get and errors get discovered like so that things don't
0: have an opportunity to become a big problem, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind yeah, of Yeah, well well, in a in a more zoomed out way, small batch is about integration. It's about yeah. when you make changes, how do you get those changes into the the game in the least disruptive and most stable way possible, right? And it's like, okay, well, a small batch is just very few changes. That's Mm -hmm. all that that is, right? And so it's like, okay, uh, it's easier to recognize problems and catch them early if you've only changed three things versus if you've changed 3,000 things,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. right? Because if you change 3,000 things and then you get an error – it's going to you be harder to know. track down where the error came from, right? Mm-hmm. And so so at its core, the why of small batch uh, delivery is about integration. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Integrating so now, changes. Now bringing that into
1: like, so in Levelhead, uh, what, what they're talking about here is that when we started early access, we were doing a new release every week in early access mm-hmm. with like one new item or a few new items or something like that. But a little, a little bit of new content and a lot of bug fixes every week. And after the first, I don't know, six weeks or something, we kicked that out to two weeks. And then a little after that, we kicked it out to a month. And then at some point we just stopped because then we're getting ready for launch, right? And the reason we did that was because we, once we got through like the stack of kind of very small features that was like adding a new item. So like it sort of fits right into the ecosystem nicely. We had a good systems for that uh, into a place where we wanted to add a new system or dramatically overhaul something or whatever. Uh, where there weren't stages in between, like the idea of that and delivery of that, where we could deliver something smaller. Piecemeal, yeah. yeah. That
0: was still do something in having delivered it, right? That, but it is still the smallest batch possible yeah. for that feature. Yep. It's just that it was a three-week batch. <laughs> There's right. no, there no other way to break it down. Yeah, well, but, so. it, but it's still being broken down because... Because it's still
1: the cause the question is what are the batches, right? Because you're also doing this when you're working on the thing itself. Because when you're writing code, then you'll make the smallest number of changes you can. Change like fix yep. one bug, add one minor feature, whatever. And Connect, then that, you push it. And then you bake that into a version so that now like that's a stable thing that exists. Then you add the next change. You describe each one as you go. And each one, you're writing a test each time too. So every time you do that, you've got an incremental change with test. Suite right that says oh yeah this is still fine right and in our case we even have internal QA who might see partial features before they become full features stuff we wouldn't deliver to players right and so there are lots of different customers involved in the the all these different loops um, and if you think about it very abstractly it's all about the minimum as I said the minimum changes you can make that you can then ensure are working as intended. Right. And can be yep. critiqued and all of that. And that doesn't have to be at the delivery to the most downstream customer, which is then the player, right? It can be delivery to an automated test suite. It could be delivery to a continuous integration pipeline that's just robots talking to each other. Right. Uh that still that
2: still accomplishes yeah. that. I yeah. think that one of the things I've I've noticed is that um because even on the art side, uh the pipelines become much more clear as far as how how the process uh kind of effectively works and and how actually it is a, very much a stepwise process going from like the idea of something to you know a rough sketch of it to actually having it fully built in spine and in, you know importable into the game and one of the things I found Interesting about that process as it's gotten more formalized is how while it is true that small batch delivery reduces, say uh like essentially the possibility of having a huge number of errors across multiple objects. So for example, if I if I made like 15 things and then dunk them all in, and actually I've been making systemically the same error since the first one. Now I have 15 of these fucking errors to go fix as opposed to if we had put it in, you know, I found it like for a second. Um, yep. but once you're far enough into a, into a a production practice and you have enough of those kind of checklists in mind about what how you need to be thinking about the objects or else, so your error rate is kind of lower. Uh, there's a benefit that you can tap into, I think, at least that I feel like I've been tapping into, which is to batch, to actually batch kinds of work. Because the reality is that moving, if you're just one person uh, and you actually work through a whole pipeline, and so in my case, like going from, oh, I'm just going to write up some ideas about what this thing is to okay, I need to figure out on the design side kind of how this actually slots into the progression systems of the game to, okay, let me do some rough sketches of this and then talk to someone about it and see if that's on target to then finishing the asset, fully getting it ready for export, et cetera. Uh, each one of those is a very different kind of work and actually yeah. switching, taking one thing and, and actually pushing it all the way through the pipe. While it's better, I think it's required, especially early on when you still don't quite know where all the errors in that sort of creation of that, of that asset might be once you actually have good, robust systems in place for making sure that the stuff you make isn't garbage, that doesn't require just implementation to test if it's garbage. Yeah, but actually like you know kind of some of the rules or some easy ways to kind of get shorthand of it. Um, then I think the surprise to me has been that batching kinds of work, so having like a morning where I'm just doing, or a whole day where I'm just doing a bunch of concept sketches for stuff is a way more efficient on like that particular column of work, right? And so if you have enough of those Almost like if you have enough of those uh, understandings of how the work needs to be tested as you go and ways to test it without pushing it all the way through the system, then I think there's an interesting balance to strike between just doing like one thing through the whole pipe at once versus being able to say, okay, I know roughly enough about how I'm going to potentially fuck stuff up downstream so I can go ahead and like work more efficiently actually as a human being in a batch, you know, like get... Although sketches done, in a
0: day. And here's what's really interesting about that, though. It, I, I feel like the big sort of like looming lesson that we've been slowly learning over these past couple of years is is that um, the hardest part of every job is the integration process, right? Yes. And so, so what you're talking about, Sam like it of it being really efficient to like just do concepts for one day and then like then just do animation for one day. Like those are normally departments in a larger studio. Right. Like there like there will be concept artists. That's that's what that's just what they do. Right. Mm-hmm. Um but that doesn't mean that they just every day just make concepts because somebody needs to first communicate to them what concepts are needed. Mm-hmm. And then when they make the concepts, they have to be able to deliver them in a way that is understandable and communicates very effectively what it's supposed to represent and how it connects to the broader vision of the game, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, Along along with instructions of like, to the 3D modeling team or whatever about how how they might envision, you know, certain things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like, part of their job is drawing the concepts, but the other part is receiving communication from one end and sending information to the other end, which that's the integration part, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, it's it's moving uh moving stuff from one department to another, and so like this is the same thing with with small batch delivery of code. It's it's about trying to make it super fast and easy to create something and have it exist in the game mm-hmm. and be delivered, right? And so that's where a lot of our efforts have gone over this this past month is we're working on these new tools um, to make it far far easier. To integrate and develop new uh, new content into the game, like we had kind of a funny conversation about like um, quite a while back about Sam. Sam was you were asking like, what would it take for me to just like add a just add a recipe? Yep. <laughs> can I, can I just like add a new recipe to the game for this? Because like
2: I, I can make weapons now. I can attachments fine. I can get all that done in like. F- like, you give me an hour, I can get you a new weapon. Yeah, but like, so Sam's
0: like, yeah, yeah, I want to, like, can I just, like, make a recipe for this weapon, right? And it's very easy to kind of think in that specifically sort of, like, human way of, like, yeah, a recipe, that's a thing that I want to add, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Except a recipe is for an item, so the item has to exist. So you have to know how to add a weapon to the game. Mm-hmm. And also, the recipe is going to use a couple of maybe new materials that don't exist, so you have to know how to add... uh loot drops to the game, mm-hmm. right? Which means that you have to have a way to easily add loot drops. And like, what if the loot comes from a new resource? Well, now you have mm-hmm. to know how to add that resource to the game and also how to make that resource appear in the world, you know? And so mm-hmm. suddenly, so suddenly, well, um, then on top of that, like the weapon has to be able to do damage to things and have like certain traits to it. So you have mm-hmm. to know how to customize the, and so suddenly like, a recipe is actually just this little sort of interdependent linked f- node in a web of in, of integrated decisions that you have to make into a, a larger system, mm-hmm. right? And so, because of the fact that in the past, um, this is, you know, just like in, the, in all the uh, previous games, like, that's a very complex programming problem is how we mm-hmm. kind of thought of it, right? Like, if you don't understand all the systems, then you can't do that. And so... Now we're, we're leaning toward the idea of like, okay, what how do we make a tool that already understands all of the interactions between these systems so that Sam could just go in and make a new weapon, make a recipe, add new resources to the game, add new terrain and environments and do whatever. Whatever is required to get this one new thing in, right? Yeah, However many changes you know, need to be made. Yeah. And maybe there's some fancy extra layer, some new... A very custom mechanic that needs to happen. It's like okay, that's where I should come in as the programmer, yep. right? Pro- program a new a new mechanic. But if what we're doing is like adding content to systems that largely have defined <clears throat> traits to them, then that's just a that's an integration and tooling problem at that
1: mm-hmm. point. Right? Well, this is where I think all of the the nuances come in with respect to what does it mean to do DevOps and like have a workflow and and work as a team to accomplish something, right? And uh, and unfortunately, a lot of what gets lost when people are talking about these things and building these systems and trying to enforce like kind of these rule sets that have been set in stone by some smart person who wrote an article about how you should do things, right? Is that it's people doing the work, real ass human beings, right? With with brains and hands doing stuff, and they mm-hmm. get they get tired, they get bored. Task switching is really really costly. They make mistakes in communication, right? Mm -hmm. On either end. Uh, So there's a, and like, and depending on their mood, things are gonna be better or worse depending on the world around us. Like, so our robots will keep chugging away. They don't care if we're in a pandemic. They'll just keep doing stuff, right? But people might have more trouble. So we care. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, if you, so these ideas are like the small batch where you say, like, okay, we break the workflow apart. So the second is our pipeline, right? Where it's like you do each step in sequence so that you bring Mm -hmm. one concept from. From not existing at all to something delivered in the game very efficiently. It's all broken apart in nice little steps. We got robots wherever we can. It's a very well understood process. And like that's the whole thing, right? Like, yeah, that's that's how a machine would do it, right? right. But we're not machines though, because there's other there's other aspects. And so even outside of the fact that Sam's a person, there's also the fact that whatever he does with one asset will inform something about another asset. Mm-hmm. Right. And so by batching the concepting stage with a lot of things. The work that he does on each one informs things he could do with the other ones so that they can actually tie together and become a more coherent, cohesive mm-hmm. set of entities that can now go into the game, right? Because they're being worked on at the same time when it's cheap, right? Yep. It's cheap to do it then instead of doing it like each one of sequence, be like, oh, fuck, I actually want to change this one that is already in the game, already fully rendered, right? Going back and changing that art, hell of a lot more expensive and costly than doing at the sketch phase, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to always make sure that you're treating this as like, okay, this is a people problem. It's always a people problem. Is how do we make the tools and the workflows assist people to accomplish the tasks that we need collectively to accomplish whatever we're doing? And what the robots are for and what the pipelines are for is to remove cognitive load and minimize errors, right? Especially communication errors. That's what it's for. What small batch is for is to minimize the cost of... uh, of Mistakes, basically. Mistakes or just preferences to change something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but whether that is a small batch, like as a unit, or whether you're, you're batching things at a particular phase, but not like, but like Sam's not also running ahead making like, oh, I'm going I'm to asset, I'm going to make literally every asset for the game, all of them, as a pipeline, right? So like every asset is now sketched. Every right. asset is now whatever, right? right? Like he's not going to do that. Like that doesn't,
0: that doesn't Because again, at the end of the day, it's an integration problem. And yeah. so if you're assuming things about how, the mechanics are going to fit together or if you're assuming stuff about the technical requirements of a certain item uh then your first goal should be to, like make some stuff make a few things mm-hmm. to test your ideas on how they fit together which means getting them into the game right yep. so if you yeah if you if you designed every single piece of the game every recipe every creature every biome whatever Uh, yeah. Before plugging anything in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you, you know, you hand that document over to the programming team and you're like, this is the game. And they just do it like everything will be wrong. Yeah. Just, just everything. Right. Because you need to, to, you know, iterate, you need to integrate your changes in, look at it, test it out, which is part of the testing is stability. But the other part is just like, is this good? (laughs) Uh, test it for whether it's hitting the targets. Right. Uh, and then you, you keep making changes. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's been kind of like just the big lesson this whole time is is trying to understand that the hardest part of all of this is just getting stuff into the game and delivered, right or like getting your changes made, getting your ideas in there, your art, your code mechanics, whatever. Um, and it's really easy to, in the short term focus on just kind of brute forcing your way through that, right um, and not taking the time to step back and just ask like, how are we getting sounds into the game? How are we getting art into the game or new mechanics? And what would it look like to do it differently? And, you know, can we afford to take two months or something to, like, rebuild this entire system?
1: Which is not uh, a small
0: batch. Nope. Yeah. Well, and, it, well, and there's uh, there's other issues, right? Because, like, so our, our first game, Tal Fight 2, was th- took three months. Our second game, Quadrups Rampage, also took three months, right? And so, like, there are tools, that we are making for Crashlands 2 that are going to take three months to, to make. Mm-hmm. Like, just, just the just the dev tool so that we can add stuff to the game, right? Now, if, if our goal was to launch Crashlands 2 in three months, we wouldn't do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because there's no time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but by extending our, our timetable out, we can say, like, okay, a certain portion of the dev time for this game is actually supposed to go into making sure that the rest of the time is incredibly productive.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Um, and and it's I think the lesson for us has just been trying to get better and better about knowing when to step back and do those things, how to do them, how to how to understand uh, the impact of them, stuff like that. So that's that's kind of been my my take on the on yeah. the depth. Well, I think, it's, I think it's
1: the integration one is is absolutely correct. Like that's just always the super hard part. And I think, even more abstractly and generally, it's anytime there's a handoff between two parts of a workflow. Like that's where that's where everything is hard, especially if it's now between departments or between software systems or between whatever, right? Uh, that's where all of the mistakes happen. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just where everything goes wrong, right? And it's an identifying those and, and some of those are also integration steps, right? Where it's like you're now merging two, together work two kinds of work entities, yeah, smashing
0: together. Well, know, I, right. I mean, I, I personally think about all handoffs as just another integration I like, step. Yeah, I think that's right. Because because it, it's yeah, because it's like I have some information, whether it's like an email that I'm sending you with instructions, maybe I've written up some documentation, maybe I'm merging some code or sending you some art or whatever, right? But like my goal is is to give you that stuff and have it turn into something or get put into something right uh and so much of the time the context is wrong there's missing information you know whatever it is um and it can't be put in it can't be used it's missing it can't something the next step yeah and so then it kind of like the communication you know ping-pongs back and forth uh and and you just can't quite get to where you need to go. Yeah. But like, one of the nice things about this though
1: is that that problem exists literally at every step, just at every step yeah. of anything, which is not, I mean, that's not nice, but the fact that it means there's a lot of low-hanging mm-hmm. fruit there to just like- Oh yeah. So like, so Sam's talks a lot about the workflow improvements he's done where he just like completely overhauls the whole last thing and like takes a few days and just like remaps hotkeys, practices and mm-hmm. like does all this stuff, right? And that's basically because in Sam's own internal pipeline within a single piece of software creating one asset, Right mm-hmm. is already a thousand steps, right? Yeah, and so
2: there's a, a lot without that needing we to do get
0: that. other people involved. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like the fact that it's
2: out. super annoying to rename folders if you have to go over yep. there and snipe it and click on it, even if you're already in it. Instead of just being like, I have a hotkey now, push hit yep. button on my keyboard. Uh, I mean, with shit, one, hand. one of
0: the things, one of the things that I did just last night is, is I wrote up. I literally looked up different keyboard layouts for a bunch of different countries and keyboards. And I created an automatic remapper for our games so that if we ever set a hotkey for something, and then somebody's like, Oh yeah, I'm actually on a French keyboard, they can just hit that. And I don't, I don't have to go look up what the French version of that hotkey would be for that keyboard, because mm-hmm. it's now automatic, it right? And that and it took like four hours to go find all these different keyboards and then develop a system of like auto-remapping and storing those configurations, you know? But also like in the past, every time we wanted to pick a hotkey for, uh, for something in one of our games, I would need to go look up three plus different keyboard layouts for that hotkey manually (laughs) and find whether or not I needed to also make, a you know, uh, and so it's like, okay, picking a hotkey five minutes, 10 minutes, uh, each time. Right. Or just take four hours and be done with it forever. Uh, but you know, you got to, it's you gotta you gotta take those times and just shut it down, right? Yeah. Like you're saying, Sam. Two days to just rebuild the entire pipeline. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, now this is soft and I don't have to deal with it yeah. anymore. And it could be I
1: mean it could be little stuff, it could be big stuff, like all of those things are worth noticing and then making a conscious decision, you know, do you wanna invest the time into improving? And I think the a thing to always remember, because this gets talked about in kinds of a, a lot of a lot of uh, uh, competing ways of the idea of like, should you go spend time fixing this thing or not, right? Because mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. always the cost of fixing the thing or improving the thing. And a lot of people will just joke about the idea of, oh, you spent two hours to save five minutes or whatever, right? Because they're so focused on time, but it's not about time. I mean, time is there. It's a component. but It's about it's actually, task switching it's and about, handoffs. And- yeah, it's about the effectiveness of the time, right? And if you test switch for five minutes to go do something, or if yeah. you test switch 20 times in a day, each one taking 30 seconds, right? Uh, or five seconds even, right? Yeah, so you've collectively- lost like
0: triple that time and also probably made some errors, Oh, yeah. We'll then add more time later. <laughs> <And> you've lost <laughs> a lot of time, right? And, and also that was that now each one of those was a handoff where mistakes
1: get to happen and things get to fall through the cracks, right? So, uh, so anywhere you can fix those things, the, the impact is always outsized compared to like the expected time gain because mm-hmm. – the time that you get back is not just that time that was lost directly, yeah. but also all the things that bled into and made made worse for the rest. of
2: the it, time. The, yeah, the the impact is outsized in both directions, right? Whether yeah. it's uh, like, oh, there's this little like thing that kind of annoys me, you know, every day, multiple times per day with this program I use, or asking whether or not like should you fix that thing? Because the reality is like the, what you believe to be the the perceived impact of it. Uh, is basically guaranteed to be smaller than what it actually is because it's far more complicated, like you said, than just saving five minutes.
0: It's just yeah. not well, and, and this is this is why I think the the crunch culture is so horrifying. yeah, because mm-hmm. if a studio is crunching to hit a deadline, they are brute forcing their way through every problem that they have. yeah, mm-hmm. right. So nobody during crunch when they're trying to hit a deadline is going to say, God, you know, I noticed that our dev team is spending a lot of time battling this one big like system or this pipeline that we have and it's producing a lot of errors and blah blah blah. And I know that like launch is six weeks away, you know, but like if we could get this thing fixed up, then suddenly everybody could actually go home and sleep. Mm -hmm. Because they wouldn't be spending 60 hours a week just fixing bugs and trying to make this thing work. Right. But the short term, like, you know, lizard brain that we have is just like, no, like deadlines coming up, just keep pushing things through the pipe, right? Uh, and so then you end up with just incredible reliance on broken things. And most of your work ends up um, It's not just, adding value, basically. You're not yeah, you're not adding value. You're just trying to you're just trying to mitigate damage, you know, yeah, caused well, it's by the cost your bad to systems. produce
1: and maintain all of that work is so high like it's just so high because it's producing so many errors and is also coming out at a lower quality than otherwise
0: would and is also yeah. probably unmaintainable um, so that you yeah I mean like this like the cyberpunk thing right like we, you know, we talked about it quite a bit back back then but but they were crunching and crunching and crunching for what like a year and a half or a long something time, whatever it was um, and if a studio is crunching that much up to the launch date of a game, it's it's just guaranteed that that game is broken as fuck. <laughs> yeah, it's guaranteed. I, I don't I don't know of a scenario where a studio has crunched nonstop and then delivered a perfectly smooth game. No, experience. Yeah, it, yeah. it just never works like that because uh, there there's a reason that they're crunching, you know, and it's because they're refusing to fix problems at the source and they are just jamming things through an already clogged broken leaky pipeline right i mean that's that's all that there is. and the thing to realize is that
1: even when it's not that blatant you know where it's like crunch and everything's broken and there's a million bugs uh there's always 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 room for improving things just always if you think everything is perfect it's just you haven't looked close enough right you haven't looked close enough at how you're holding your racket Yeah, and that's the thing is it could be anything it could just be literally anything there's gonna be something out there that if you notice it because you're 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 subconsciously like dealing with a lot of small frustrations and a lot of small things that aren't even frustrating they're just like make things a little more clunky but you haven't even registered them as as like a step that you're taking You have even registered them as part of your workflow because it's not a big enough deal to surface you know consciously in your brain right yep almost the entirety of what we do all day every day is that stuff that's where most of our time goes, right? So there's infinite room for identifying these little things and making them better. And it's and it's worth the time to sit back, document your workflow, every little fucking, as if you're telling a computer how to do it, right? Yep. Every little thing, like what is it you're doing and see if you can find things to improve.
0: Yeah. Well, this is actually something I'm doing over the break. We're on break now, starting like today. Um, but yeah, over this winter break, I am, I am going through the entire house and just turning the whole thing inside out and reorganizing everything, you know. It's one of those like spring cleaning things, right? But it's like uh the little the little annoyances with how things are laid out or where things are or whatever like you you don't recognize just how much that fucks you up mm-hmm. until maybe like one day you're really sleep deprived and just having a bad day. <laughs> and then like then like Doing five or six things that should be easy around the house are just hard because you just haven't taken the time to, you know, get it in order. And again, um, it can be little stuff, you know, like it's all it's all if very, you're very often multi, it's little stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like if you live in a multi-floor
1: house, right? And you don't have cleaning supplies in every floor. Right. That just means when you need to clean something up, you'll be like, uh, go upstairs, come back down. And I have to remember <laughs> <laughs> that's a big deal, right? But uh, like we have little, just little rascog carts from Ikea that's cute little, cute little metal guys, you know, that we just like mm. can throw cleaning supplies into. It's like one on every floor. It's just like, there's just cleaning supplies. They're just right there, you know? Uh, yeah, that's a like, good idea. Yeah. Been, <laughs> we, have, we have cat litter also on every floor because we have a litter box on every floor, you know, so we don't have to, because now the when I look at the litter box, I'm like, day. oh, yeah. Because it's like kind of it has started to like, it's been too long. I need to change it out, you know? And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, oh, but I got to trudge all the way down to the basement, you know, and then like pick up a 30 pound bag of litter and bring it upstairs. It's you
0: like- know, what's kind of funny about that though, is especially for like non-perishable things, I feel like people have a very unusual reaction to this, which is, so, okay. So I was reading about this, this person who was complaining that, that their significant other never screwed the the toothpaste cap back on. Hmm. Okay. Oh yeah. And this drove them crazy, Right. And then somebody responded and they were like, why don't you just get your own toothpaste?
1: Yeah.
0: And then the person was like, yeah, well, we don't want to spend that much money on toothpaste. And spending like, you're not going to be using twice as much toothpaste. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're still going to be buying toothpaste at the same rate. It's just that now you're going to have one extra tube in the house, mm-hmm. right? So when yours runs out, you buy a new one. When hers runs out, she buys a new one. But you're not both brushing your teeth at double the rate now. Uh, and so the same thing goes with like the cleaning supplies, right? It's like, the instinct is just like, I don't want to spend all that money on cleaning supplies. Right? It's like, you already are spending that money on cleaning supplies. Yeah. So you're not going to be hosing things down with twice as much Windex just because you got a bottle <laughs> upstairs and a bottle downstairs. <laughs> yeah, we have we have like four full bags of
1: litter, like 30-pound bags of litter. Just like Yeah, in it's, it's like, not
0: going to expire. Yep. You know? Just sit there uh, So just, you know, just uh, if, if you can, yeah, just get that and, and populate it around your house. So anyways, just, yeah, think about that stuff. Uh, I think we got to wrap because that's all the time we have for uh, for this yeah. week uh, so we'd like to thank our producers Fat Bard and Jen Costa for putting the podcast together and thanks to our community moderators who keep our discord running to get more involved in the Butterscotch community just go to podcast.bscotch.net where we have links to the discord a way for you to donate and links to the archives thank you all for listening and we'll see you next week goodbye bye